Hello and welcome to another episode of Connecting the Dots. I'm Jake Lancaster, an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. Hey everybody, I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a general surgeon and chief medical officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital DeSoto. And today we're honored to have Dr. Stephanie Murphy and Colleen Hole here from Atrium Health to talk to us about hospital at home. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Stephanie and Colleen, uh, once again, thank you for being on the on the podcast. And and just before we get started, I want you to know that that, that Dr. Uh, Dr. Joy highly recommended you guys to come on to our podcast, and we're very we're very thankful that he's here. And once again, we're we're thankful that you guys are here. Um, you know, with with the nursing shortage, staffing shortages that we're having, uh, we're Hospitals are, are struggling uh, with capacity, and I know that one thing that you guys have have been working on is is hospital at home. While it's not a brand new a brand new concept, it's it's fairly new, and and I know that you guys have done a lot of work with that at Atrium. So so why don't you guys tell us a little bit first of all what what is hospital at home, and tell us a little bit about the work that you guys have been doing. I'll kick off. <laughs> we didn't rehearse. Um, so as you suggested, um, our hospitals are struggling with both capacity and staffing. Um, it's ebb and flow, but mostly for two years now. Um, and the staffing crisis has gotten worse. But really, our hospital home program was born out of a capacity crisis. Um, all, going on two years ago, March of 2020, um, a very small group of us gathered and said we are probably in trouble if we don't figure out a way to care for patients requiring an inpatient stay. We will not have enough beds and our hospitals run at or above capacity most of the time anyway. So um, within a few short days, seven or 10 days or so, um, we saw our first patient and really looked at it as a system initiative where a large health system scattered, centered in Charlotte, North Carolina, but spread across several counties and knew our rural facilities would struggle as well as our urban facilities. So that's really how it was launched. Um, and like most hospital home programs that have been around a long time, it's built with providers, nurses, and in our case, we use MIH or Mobile Integrated Health Community Paramedicine for our in-home visits. Many, many systems use nurses, but North Carolina does allow a, a broad enough scope of practice for uh, community paramedicine. And we already had a very robust program that Dr. Murphy actually leads and started about seven or eight years ago. So um, in many ways, we had a head start because we were able to launch pretty quickly as we gathered up the, uh, the other team players. Stephanie, do you want to add to that? I think you did a great job. I think the one piece that that makes our hospital at home program unique is actually the fact that we were uh, born to help with capacity. I think a lot of other hospital at home programs were born with the idea of, you know, saving uh, bed days, cost savings for patients. Um, but we really were born and bred to say we need to help our capacity uh, crisis for our facilities. Um, so it made us a little bit unique. I think the other thing that made us unique, uh, and Colleen touched on it a little bit, was just the geographic scope of impact that we had to make um, to truly uh, affect our healthcare system. So, um, you know, we now have nine fully waivered hospitals and a 10th emergency department um, that we touch with regularity. And so that has also made our program a bit unique. Um, I think 
to answer the question though that was asked Dr. Mason about what is hospital at home, it is just that. It is acute inpatient care in the comfort of a patient's home, um, which is very different than of course, uh, you know, being in a brick and mortar facility. So Colleen touched on this or, or mentioned that Stephanie, you had been working in this area for the last seven or eight years. Can you talk a little bit about what you were doing, I guess, prior to the you know, full adoption of hospital at home, how you got into this, um, you know, and what is your background and how did it, how did it kind of mesh in this area? It, it was an accident. No. <laughs> so, so I'm a hospitalist. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a board certified internist. I'm a career hospitalist. Um, seven years ago, so in 2015, um, it was actually the end of 14, beginning of 15, we started talking about building uh, a transition services clinic and suite of services for our patients. It was um, primarily focused on, you know, the readmissions penalties that were going to be handed out by CMS for facilities that were not able to perform up to the up to the necessary standards. So um, out of our, our largest facilities, which is Carolina's Medical Center, Maine, downtown Charlotte, uh, we birthed our transition services clinic, which is a multidisciplinary clinic. Um, we have providers, we have nurses, we have um, uh, palliative care, we're integrated with behavioral health, uh, pharmacy, social work. I tell people I'm the most spoiled provider you'll ever meet, um, but we did it all to try and combat a lot of the um, areas of need for patients that we know have struggled um, with rehospitalization and hospital utilization in the past. As much of the literature as we could find anyway, a lot of it is being written. We helped contribute to it um, with our experiences. Um, out of that, we also partnered with um, Sanger, uh, which is our large uh, cardiology group in Charlotte, who actually had one of the um, first readmission interventions uh, in the Charlotte Metro area uh, called Heart Success for Heart Failure. Um, we now co-locate, we work together. Um, and then we also partnered with the Division of Mobile Medicine, which Colleen pointed out, uh, they were looking to develop a community paramedicine program now called appropriately so a mobile integrated health program uh, based on the state of North Carolina uh, naming recommendations for how these groups are funded and uh, supported. Ours is through a healthcare system, which is why we are now called a mobile integrated health program and not a community paramedicine program. Uh, we partnered very closely in those early days and months and years, frankly, um, recognizing that we were going to target a lot of similar patients. Um, and so uh, doing that work, we upfitted our, our MIH colleagues with virtual equipment so that we could take virtual care to our patients, our most vulnerable patients, um, and uh, and see them in their homes, um, sometimes not always in their homes. Sometimes these patients live in their cars, other areas where we knew we needed to reach them um, and conventional healthcare couldn't. So with that partnership, we also started upfitting them um, with uh, medications that we knew we could deliver differently in a proactive way. Um, so, you know, talking about heart success, IV Lasix, things like that, helping to proactively manage patients before they ended up going back into the hospital. And so that's what Colleen was mentioning with some of the advanced therapies that we already were doing um, in the patient's home environment. I use home loosely, depending on what the patient needed um, 
to, to help bridge them. So that's how I got involved in this. We've been upscaling it. Um, we've been trying to get more aggressive with what we're doing. Um, and I think, you know, Colleen and a lot of the other leaders saw this as an opportunity to lift a hospital at home program. It certainly sounds like you guys have been, you know, the, the foundation work and the work that you you guys have been doing. This was just the next logical step to to treating these patients at home. But a question I have is, you know, typically the process for somebody getting getting admitted to the hospital is they come to the emergency department with a problem and it's determined that they need to be admitted or they may be directly admitted from a physician's office or from a nursing home or, or, or wherever. Tell us a little bit about about y'all's process. How does somebody get sick, and then how is it determined that okay, we're gonna we're gonna take you get take care of you at home? Talk to us a little bit about that, if you don't mind. Yeah. So really, um, the path is essentially the same as you describe. A patient presents to the emergency department um, in most cases. And actually, I should mention the CMS waiver will not allow us to admit from home a sniff or a, a provider office. We see that as a barrier, but um, maybe someday it'll change. But patient has to come from a brick and mortar facility. So a decision that the patient needs hospital level care is made just like it would be for any other patient. The question then is based on our eligibility criteria, can the patient be cared for in hospital at home or do they need to go upstairs to, to a med surge ward? Uh, things like um, social determinants of health are part of that decision tree. If there is no one in the home to support the patient, no emergency contact, and a few other factors, they're not eligible from that perspective. But clinically, um, and these are all criteria that Dr. Murphy wrote, um, stable vital signs, not likely to need invasive procedures or high-level imaging. Um, they understand what they're signing up for. In other words, they're uh, mentally stable at least at baseline, so you don't have um, hypoxia situation going on. So clinically, they're eligible, they have the appropriate support structure, and frankly, there is no bed upstairs, let's send them to hospital home. So they have to meet inpatient criteria just as any other patient does. They also can come from one of the wards on a med surge unit, you know, and, and I wouldn't say short and length of stay because it's actually a transfer, not a discharge, but we can create some capacity by taking them out of the hospital once they're stable. So yeah, that was going to be my, my next question is, so you could have somebody who is who is already admitted in the hospital. Let's say you put somebody in with pneumonia and you see after a day or so that they're that they're stable, but they, they do need to some continued inpatient care. You can transfer those patients to hospital at home. Yep. About 40% come out of our emergency departments about 60% are the, the tail end of an inpatient stay. And what diseases do you admit to hospital at home? Um, you mentioned needing special or uh, needing stable vital signs. A lot of, or some of the struggle that we have had and others I think have had is finding the, the patient that would meet inpatient criteria um, as opposed to OBS criteria, observation criteria, and still be appropriate for hospital at home. So it's kind of a, a smaller slice of that inpatient, they're going to stay for two two midnights, um, but their vitals are going to be stables, and they're not going to need invasive invasive procedures or high level imaging. Which patients are y'all able to admit into this program? Take that step. 
Sure, no problem. I, I think that's the that's the million dollar question, Dr. Lancaster. That's what everybody everybody wants to know and understand. And 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 you're right. You know that that is a very um, fine line that you walk between inpatient observation criteria. Um, so we target a lot of infectious processes. Um, COVID pneumonia is where we started, right? Uh, so that's the easiest one. But then, of course, community acquired pneumonia. Um, acute polynephritis, uh, acute uncomplicated diverticulitis, um, cellulitis. When you're looking at infectious processes, those are kind of our, our number one bang for your buck. Um, we also look at acute on chronic conditions. And what I mean by that is a, a patient that comes in with a known diagnosis of congestive heart failure with an acute flare. We do not take a new diagnosis um, until that patient, of course, completes the inpatient part of their workup. And then to Colleen's point, they may need continued IV diuresis, um, but we want that to be an acute on chronic condition. Same thing for COPD and asthma. Um, those are probably our biggest um, we have some other ones that, that are in our pile, but I would say um, those are our, our most common uh, diagnoses. And Colleen, I don't know if you had anything you wanted to add. Yeah, the only thing I'll mention is we're still running about 84% COVID because it just doesn't want to seem to get out of here. But we're, we're really looking at other conditions, even some surgical post-op care, some obstetric GYN type patients, and maybe even oncology. I, I, I tend to think beyond a diagnosis or DRG, what are the clinical conditions for which hospital home is appropriate? And I, and I mean by that, vital signs, oxygen requirements, you know, their clinical condition even more than their diagnosis, because in some ways, the sky's the limit. When somebody is admitted to the hospital, you know, they, they have a they have a, an attending, which is a, a physician, they, they have a nurse who's helping take care of them, but there's so many other ancillary services you have respiratory therapists, you have um, radiology technicians, you have a phlebotomist, and you guys mentioned, what is it, MIH? Talk to us a little, a little bit about that, and it sounds like that's somebody who is just kind of cross-trained across many different platforms. That's something I'm not familiar with. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that, if you don't mind. Sure. So, Mobile Integrated Health um, is actually a it's a name that the state of North Carolina um, used to help delineate community paramedicine programs versus programs that are funded by a healthcare system. So community paramedicine programs in and of themselves are usually funded by county EMS agencies um, and are traditionally focused on um, patients that utilize and, and have the tendency to inappropriately utilize healthcare. Um, and it and they help to stem off 911 calls. <clears throat> they help to plug patients into some of the chronic services that they may need um, that oftentimes call, cause them to trigger the EMS system. Mobile integrated health um, essentially is similar but it is funded by the healthcare system. So what does that mean? It means that we can go wherever the patients need us to go if they are atrium health patients. Um, traditional community paramedicine programs are limited by county lines um, because they are funded by the county EMS system and that is where they go. Um, the other thing that uh, 
we've been able to bridge is access to the electronic health record. A lot of EMS agencies, because of laws um, and limitations, are not able to directly access the electronic health record of a specific um, healthcare system because they are not uh, a specific healthcare system. They take the patient to whatever facility is closest per MTALA. So we are able to navigate that because MIH is part of our healthcare system. Um, in theory, MIH does not need to be paramedics only. Ours primarily is, but a lot of MIH programs will employ social workers, nurses, CMAs, um, health advocates. There's there's a lot of, of ways to develop MIH outside of a paramedic going into the home. To talk about how they're supporting us, you're absolutely right, Dr. Mason. They go into the home, they are the vessel for our care. So they're, you know, providing medications, um, drawing labs. They do not transport the patients. And I think that that's an, appropriate, uh, an important point to make here, um, that they do not transport patients uh, in the current role that they are providing for us. Um, and so that's, I guess, a little bit more detail. I don't know, Colleen, if you had anything else you wanted to add. Yeah, I, I would, I, I use this a lot. They're the hands and feet and eyes and ears of, of what would have happened in the hospital from the nursing perspective. So we have a 24-7 virtual nursing team. Essentially, it's by phone, but it's a call bell, and the nurses proactively reach out frequently through the day. But the hands and feet are that community paramedic in the home, touching the patients, starting IVs, running remdesivir. They also facilitate a virtual visit with our provider. So while the paramedic is in the home, they're connected by video audio to our provider to do a virtual visit. But in addition, we do have social work, care management, respiratory therapy, PT, OT, pharmacy. So, you know, we have all of those services, most of which are provided virtually. So you were speaking earlier about uh, the proportion of patients that arrive in your hospital at home from the ED versus inpatient. Can you tell us just a little bit more about your screening Correct, or how you do the intake process. Do you screen every patient that comes through the ED? And then once they're inpatient, how do you evaluate those that are inpatient for a potential going to hospital at home? Um, her mic's off, so I'll just keep talking. Um, it, again, the patient has to meet inpatient criteria, obviously, but no, we don't screen every patient. Um, I will say, while we have tremendous capacity issues, our EDs, like everywhere in the country, are a bit chaotic right now. So COVID comes to mind almost all the time. Oh, they're COVID? Could they go to hospital at home? Some of these other conditions, still, it's not a familiar, well-worn path. So we are in the process of hiring nurse navigators, actually, who will be on site and even in some cases virtual to look for eligible patients and help make that a safe and seamless transition to hospital at home. So really, we rely heavily on our providers to think hospital to home. We have a, a what we call the physician connection line, which is our referral, uh, internal referral system. So if I'm an ED provider, I might think this patient's eligible. I'll call the PCL. I will talk with our hospital at home, what we call the quarterback. They'll say, yep, this patient's clinically appropriate. On that same communication string is one of our MIH colleagues who says, yes, 
we can service that patient in Stanley County. And so we then make that transfer happen. But um, it's it, and the same same happens on the inpatient side, more from a hospitalist lens than the emergency physician or, or APP. And, and when you make the transition, sorry, uh, when you or transition or you transfer them to the hospital at home program, is it the same inpatient team following them or is they is there a dedicated team? Yeah, we Dr. Lancaster, that was the, uh, the point that I was actually going to drive home is that, you know, we use, so CHG, which is Carolina's hospitalist group, we staff all of Atrium's facilities. So we are all one team um, and all of our hospitalists that are delivering care work with the inpatient team so that we can then have that seamless handoff. It really is like transferring a patient from unit to unit uh, from that perspective. So, so can you comment on that? Is there, does the attending stay the same or is there a hospital at home attending that will pick up the patient? That's an excellent question. No, so the, the attending does transfer to okay. the hospital at home team, um, but the conversation is is just as if you were transferring the patient within a unit. So, you know, we have that conversation. Here's what's going on. Here's, you know, the the continued plan of care. Um, and then we're able to to transfer the patient into into our unit. I'll also mention that the CMS waiver does require a, a, an in-person H&P. So part of the hospitalist group role is to do that in-person H&P before the patient leaves the facility and then hands off to their colleague. When you when you guys implemented uh, hospital at home, you guys did it out of a necessity. But, you know, this podcast is called Connecting the Dots. And a lot of times we talk about experimenting. And part of that experiment is, OK, we, we we're going to do something and we think this is going to be the results. And sometimes that's the case and sometimes it's not. What what? Talk to us about some of the metrics that you guys maybe looked at as far as, you know, patient satisfaction, uh, quality metrics, financial metrics. And uh, did you did you have any surprises or did did your did your patient satisfaction in, uh, improve? Talk to us a little bit about those things. Yeah, I will say if we'd have done this in traditional ways, we would have met once a month for two years and hemmed and hawed and maybe someday pulled the trigger on this. Yep. So for that, I am thankful for COVID because it forced our hand. I will be honest to say we didn't go into it with any other plan than to relieve the capacity issues in the facilities. We hoped to have what you suggest, but since then, we have a very robust quality uh, infrastructure and a committee structure. So we track things like length of stay, readmission rates, bounce back to acute care for exacerbation. We track uh, patient engagement and patient experience, I should say. Um, all, the, all the standard metrics you would expect, and we are performing the same or better than brick and mortar facilities on all of those. Um, we are paid obviously by Medicare and Medicaid and many of our commercial payers. So the bottom line is positive. That was a surprise, to be honest. Um, we know that this can be delivered at a lower cost. Really, I hope for all eventually, payers, providers, and patients. Um, but we know that the potential is there, particularly as we gain experience, gain efficiencies, and continue to refine the program. I believe this is part of the future of healthcare. In fact, I think it has to be. Our CFO 
said not long ago, we can't build enough brick and mortar beds to meet the need, nor can we afford to do so. So we see this as we got a lift because of the pandemic, but it is very much part of our rural health strategy moving forward, our health equity strategy, and our financial reducing the total spend of healthcare strategy. So here at Atrium, we believe it's here to stay. I can imagine, you know, I'm just thinking about length of stay and I could see where you would most certainly have a shortened length of stay because the patient's already at home and you're, and you're probably more willing to, quote, discharge that patient than you would be if that patient was, was at your hospital. So that's that's very interesting. Yeah. And, and the patient experience is, I would say, significantly higher because most people would prefer to be at home in the familiar surroundings, but we also know, and there's literature to support, patients fall less, you have less delirium, they eat better, generally, eating their own home food, um, less less uh, risk of infection. So there are a lot of conditions that we create by putting people in brick-and-mortar hospitals that, that we can address. And, and really, the last I'll say on that is, you can take a, an interview, or you can do an interview with a patient in a hospital bed, and they will tell you what they want to tell you. You really do not know how that patient's living until you go and see for yourself. So we do have the opportunity to see the truth about how our patients, how well or how well they're not living and actually intervene. So we're working with a lot of our colleagues within the system to figure out how do we then do something about the fact that they have no uh, support bar beside their toilet or a ramp to get into the house. So we think that, again, part of our health social impact strategy will really be getting a lift from this program. I um, I know Carolina's is a big, big hospital, and I don't know what, what y'all's average daily census is, but, but on average, how many patients on a given day will you have admitted at home at Carolina's? Well, we have a budgeted census of 32, which is about what we've been running. At peak, a year ago, we were at 130 patients. Wow, um, my goodness. A little bit um, stressful. Um, we, we, our sweet spot is, is in the low 30s. So on any given day, though, just like in a real hospital, you may turn over half of that department. So discharge 10 and get 10 or 12 back in. And that presents, obviously, some serious challenges uh, to, to make that happen, but we do. <laughs> so, you know, when people started first having these conversations about hospital at home, the, the biggest, the first question that really came to most people's minds was, well, is it safe for the patient to be at, the, at their home? Um, what's going to happen if something, if the patient has to return to the hospital, how do we manage that? Um, and so that was the big risk, I think, with anybody starting up a hospital at home program was, you know, what do you do if there's a, a bad outcome at, at the house and uh, how do you manage that? What has y'all's experience been with this so far? Um, and have you been able to allay kind of the concerns out there about uh, you know, that outcome? Yeah, so I think, first of all, that's that's a fair concern. Uh, I, I don't think we would be doing our jobs as providers, as healthcare administrators, as you know, nurses, as paramedics, if we weren't saying what if, um, because that that's what we're here to do. Um, I think the answer to that question is 
building as many safety nets in the process as you possibly can. And so what I mean by that is all of the screening criteria, the fact that we not only look at clinical um, criteria, but also looking at, you know, functional criteria from a patient safety perspective. And then to Colleen's point, the, the social factors that, that come into play. And we don't just look at them on the first evaluation of the patient. We look at them every time the patient moves. So we look at them when the patient is either in the emergency department or in the hospital. We look at it again on that first visit with us or the first phone call with the nurse. We look at it again on day two within the hospital at home program. That evaluation and re-evaluation goes on so that you can then escalate a patient if necessary. I can look at you and tell you that we've had plenty of patients that we've had to send back to brick and mortar because the home environment was what not what um, we thought it was um, or what even the patient thought it was. And that's actually the most interesting way to interact with somebody, which is when they tell you, no, Dr. Murphy, I can do this. I've got it. And you see them a couple of days in a row and you say, are you sure? And they say, no, you're right, I can't. Um, and it actually helps us to then get the patient where they need to be, oftentimes safely, um, rather than uh, to Dr. Mason's point, discharging the patient home without some of the support, and then all of a sudden they have a sentinel event. Um, so I think there's a lot of positives to programs like this. Um, and I, I don't wanna say that I'm gonna flip the safety question on its head, but I actually do think that we offer more safety nets um, to allow patients to transfer um, in, a, in a way that offers their interest, but offers their safety. Colleen, did you wanna add anything to that? No, I, I think you said it perfectly. I, I see it as, as truly an opportunity to be holistic in how we take care of patients, because we know that most of what leads to their failure, if you will, is not the medication that was ordered. It's it's everything else. And, and so we're able to make sure they were able to get their medication and make sure that their home is a safe environment. And and I mean, you do literally see everything, as you know, when you go into the home. Have, have you had any commercial payers approach you guys and say, hey, we would like we'd like more of our patients to uh, to be admitted at home? I wouldn't say they have said that exactly, but they are all universally very intrigued and interested in what we're doing. And most are paying us a full inpatient DRG. We have not fully contracted all of that, but as is often the case, they're gonna follow the lead of, of CMS. And so that's that's been great. Um, I do believe as time goes on, we're gonna shift from a fee-for-service full DRG payment to more of an episode of care or bundled payment. So, you know, strategically thinking about how do we as a health system drive to value with this model, that's when I put my pop health hat on, you know, we are, at least in our market, still pretty much fee-for-service here. We're not very far down the value road, but I see this as an integral part of different payment models. And as I said earlier, I think we all win. When we get well, for your CFO's sake, do it do it inexpensively, but not too inexpensively, or the insurance companies won't pay you for that full DRG. Well, why do you say that? Because that was some of the angst at the very beginning. Literally, we don't want to talk to the payers. Let's not talk to the payers <laughs> because you're going to open a can of worms. And there's some truth in that, to be honest. Sure, um, sure. 
Well, I know we're running out of time with you all, but I would like to get your input on where is this going in the future? What is y'all's next step for your program? Go ahead, Stephanie. Sure. So on my side, you know, it's looking at a lot of the the different clinical conditions that I think uh, we can take care of in this environment. You know, Colleen mentioned some of the the surgical opportunities, the um, urological opportunities, oncology, um, OBGYN, and so I think there's a lot of opportunity to see how we can touch more patients clinically. Um, I think the other piece to this in my eyes is, and I know Colleen's going to touch on this, so I won't hit it too hard, is the fact that a lot of um, folks are under the misconception that this care delivery model is, is for the elite. And I actually don't think so. I think if we do this correctly, um, that this really is a for-all opportunity, which is my passion and driving purpose. And I think that um, we are uniquely positioned because of a lot of the relationships that Colleen has made within Atrium, a lot of the interest within Atrium, to truly make this a for-all initiative. And I really do want to tell that story. Colleen? I don't think I can top that. Um, uh, but. But to my earlier points, I do see this not as a pandemic window of opportunity. I think that opened the window, but I truly believe this is transformative for our healthcare system um, and, and part of an array of services that shake our paradigms and, and we do things differently. I do believe in empowerment of patients and the more engaged they are, the more empowered they are, this very much requires, honestly, that they lean in and be part of their care. Um, I think it will ultimately reduce the total spend in our healthcare system. I think patients in most cases are safer at home. So part of our safety, e equity, rural health strategy, all of those things, it, it is very much lined up with that. Some would say as many as 20% of patients sitting in brick and mortar could be eligible for this type of care. I don't know that for certain, but I'm inclined to think it's a whole lot more than than the one or two percent that we're hitting. Um, so, yeah, I, I I can imagine this has got traction. I also believe at the at this, the national level, there are voices beyond ours. Um, some you just mentioned earlier who really through the hospital home users group and many sitting up on Capitol Hill trying to help people learn what this even is so that the legislation can support it. And with legislation comes obviously funding. So that's our future, I think. Well, thank thank both of you so much again for coming on the program. Uh, we definitely learned a lot. And, and thank you everybody for listening to Connecting the Dots. Remember, if you follow the link in the show notes, you can redeem this episode for CME credit. Thank you guys, it's very interesting. Thank you for having us.